0: The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, June 26th, 2018. From Slated to the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Politico reporting. I like when you put it in the present tense. It sounds urgent. But anyway, this is something that happened on Friday. And what it was is that Mark Warner was at a speech-slash-fundraiser thing at his home on Martha's Vineyard. And he said to the crowd, Give me one more glass of wine. I'll tell you stuff only Bob Mueller and I know. If you think you've seen wild stuff so far, buckle up. It's going to be a wild couple of months. Another version of this joke would be something like, Look, maybe it's just the 1987 Riesling rated as a 94-by-wine spectator as a fruity, ripe, and round beverage talking. But how about that Bob Mueller? Boy, I tell you, if I had a dollar for every impropriety that guy investigated, I would not be donating it to the Trump Legal Defense Fund. Look, it's Martha's Vineyard. There's gonna be some wine jokes made. But Donald Trump, never a fan of venophile humor, or a drinker, pounced, Tweet. Why is Senator Mark Warner, Democrat Virginia, and let me pause right now to say thank you, Mr. President, the D slash VA, not only is it a useful orientation, it adheres to AP style. The president tweets on, why is Senator Mark Warner, perhaps in a near drunken state, and I got to say, pausing again, that's not just a qualifier, that's a double qualifier, He could have just said perhaps in a drunken state or asserted in a near drunken state if he wanted to go close to the line of saying something he didn't know for sure. But the president did not want to do that. So, so far, this tweet is adhering to very high standards. Why is Senator Mark Warner, D. Virginia, perhaps in a near drunken state, claiming he has information that only he and Bob Mueller, the leader of the 13 angry Democrats on a witch hunt, knows isn't this highly illegal? Is it being investigated? Started off so well. And uh, isn't this highly illegal was punctuated by only a period. But of course, that's not, that's not what gets me upset. It's the phrase, Bob Mueller, the leader of the 13 angry Democrats on a witch hunt. You know, there was a time when Trump knew that the key to a good zinger was the zing. A put down needs to be terse. Lion Ted. Crooked Hillary. Yesterday, Wacky Jackie. 13 Angry Democrats on a Witch Hunt. What is this, a Frank Zappa album? 13 Angry Democrats on a Witch Hunt. Yo ho ho and a bottle of Mark Warner's wine. It lacks punch. It lacks pizzazz. Slur Spectator ranks it only as a 78. Dispiriting top notes, plagued by rain and rot, aggressive acidity could also describe it as past its peak, mean, no harmony, and little fruit. But of course, if I were to call it mean, no harmony, and little fruit, I would literally be quoting from Wine Spectator's 1974 description of the Riesling. So I did learn something in a roundabout way from a Donald Trump tweet, which is, precisely the way a functioning democracy is supposed to work. On the show today, speaking of how a functioning democracy is supposed to work, the photo negative edition, the Trump travel ban passes muster. Stephen Breyer, plus three angry ladies in black robes, reads strongly worded letters of protest. And that, people, that is called Balancing checks and balances, and that is a balance we haven't seen since the Suzuki Samurai or the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. But now we're using it here with the Supreme Court. It's worked in all those cases. But first, kids and their social media and their rock and roll and their tendency to see their votes as pointless in a representative democracy. But the youth vote this year might just be a little different. If that's the case, my guest John De La Volpe would know. The youth vote, the ivory-billed woodpecker of demographics. Will there be a youth quake? I could confidently say no. But some of my confidence is based on the research of John Delavolpe, Volpe, who is the Harvard Institute of Politics director of polling. He's been polling on millennials. He even has three millennials at home. I mean, talk about an intense uh, commitment to a focus group. But I want to talk about how millennials have changed, especially in the wake of uh, a couple prominent school shootings. Hello, John. How are you? I'm great, Mike. How are you? I'm good. So before we talk about what's going on right now with the uh, kids from Parkland, with the kids from San Antonio, let's just lay some baselines about what youth participation in politics, presidential politics, and midterms have been. Usually about half of people 1829 vote in presidential elections, and then when it comes to midterms, it's a lot lower.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Consider about half in um, presidentials and about half of that a quarter, 19%, 20% in midterms. The states that are highly contested typically kind of get a little bit north of 50% when, when you've got campaigns targeting them. But yeah, that's a good barometer, 50% in presidential years.
0: And what's the overall turnout? How does that compare to the nation as a whole?
1: The way I, I look at it is, you know, it's like 50% of folks in their 20s, and you add 10 percentage points for every kind of age cohort over that. So 30-somethings will vote, you know, 60 percent all the way up to, you know, 80 percent or so for seniors. The the One of the most significant barriers for young people, and I would argue anyone voting, is whether or not their vote in the process in itself makes a tangible difference. Is there a difference between, you know, one candidate and another candidate? In 2000, it was difficult. By the way, in 2000, half of young voters voted for Bush, half voted for Gore. And, and, and 9-11— we had a we saw a dramatic change in the efficacy of voting, the efficacy of participation, the tangible nature, obviously you know with the war and then with Katrina afterwards, et cetera. We saw the uptick in voting, which led to the movement, which was Obama in two thousand and eight. and what we're seeing today, this is before the shootings this is you know as a result of the two thousand and sixteen campaign we're seeing another what I'm referring to is a as another once in a generation attitudinal shift about the efficacy of voting. Yeah. So why would
0: they think their vote matters? I thought the lessons of uh, everything we've seen with gun laws is that your vote doesn't matter.
1: Well, t- take a step back. I think w- looking at the kind of the prism of the 16 campaign, I think you know voters were able to see a tangible difference between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and certainly a tangible difference between Hillary Clinton, the Democratic nominee, and and Donald Trump.
0: So this isn't a question but an observation. In 2014, and maybe in earlier midterms, the feeling among young people was that my vote doesn't matter and that things are dysfunctional and nothing's happening Politics or government is a place where nothing happens, and I don't want to get involved. I could have a bigger impact doing things away from politics if I care at all. Put a pin in that. Now, the perception hasn't changed in terms of how much young people want to have an impact. And I don't know if they think that their vote matters, but what they think is that politics isn't a place where nothing happens. It's a place where bad things happen. So I think that maybe they've, the perception is this is a dysfunctional ball and nothing to this is a dysfunctional, potentially dangerous institution, and I want to try to have a say. Do you think that that theory is right?
1: I, I do, and I think the most important element of that theory or hypothesis is the first part, which is millions of young people every single day volunteer in their communities, and that they do see the system as... Such a kind of broken. There's incredibly little trust in all of these institutions. And there's a real challenge in terms of whether they think these institutions can even solve the problems that are facing us. But again, I do think they're beginning to see at this kind of early age that the only way to remedy some of these things is to, is to begin to kind of engage.
0: And by the way, I understand where they're coming from. When, when, so when you were a kid, you had to get up and change the TV manually. When I was a kid, I remember when we got cable. Now all these kids have magic boxes in their pockets with every song and every TV show ever made. I mean, the supply chain technology with Walmart it has reshaped things. What I'm saying is they live in a, an efficient world, in such an efficient world where things are so highly functional. And And government's actually gotten a little bit worse. So compared to everything else they do in life, when they look at government, it's not just a gap. It's a gigantic chasm. I can understand not wanting to have a thing to do with that institution if you grew up with magic cell phones with every answer in the world at your fingertips.
1: And I think that was one of the reasons that we saw – kind of a decrease in participation after Obama's election. Expectations were so high that things would magically change much more quickly than the institutions allowed them to change. And therefore, where we, we kind of, I think, lost a really key opportunity kind of in this country to move more people towards thinking about public service, politics, government, et cetera, in a more positive way.
0: Yeah. Beyond the fact that there were some high-profile school shootings, is the fact that some of those students became prominent activists, especially the ones from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, do you think that is having effect on uh, people who are actually a little bit older than them?
1: I think there's no question it's already had an effect based upon, you know, the increase of voter registration that we've seen on the ground, one. And we also... Are beginning to see that effect as well because I, I think that the the attitudinal change has already kind of happened because of 2016 in terms of the tangible nature of politics. The attention that young people, young activists, are bringing to the gun debate is another perfect example of a tangible difference. That politics can make.
0: How much do you believe in generations at all? They the stereotype that baby boomers are selfish and the greatest generation was selfless. And how much of it is just that, you know, we're talking about tens of millions of people. The millennial generation has an ethnic makeup far different from previous generations. I mean, if we were just talking about the ethnic makeup and the demographic makeup other than age of this generation, would it look so different than fifty year olds or thirty-five year olds who are majority non-white, for instance?
1: The generation attitudinally it would look different, and certainly and one of the reasons is I think as you state, is race still plays a really significant factor in the kind of opinions and attitudes of young people. Although I do believe that there are kind of overarching attitudes that do transcend a generation. When I think about this generation, I think of them as globalists. I think of them as highly kind of collaborative. We can see this both in how they live, how they work, and how they think about foreign policy as an example, which is very different than other older generations. And I clearly see them having this kind of commitment to service, which means that they have another level of understanding, I think, than, than I might have, you know, someone who grew up in the, in the early 80s.
0: I want to ask you about a couple prominent people in your field. So you got your start or at least an early job with Mark Penn?
1: Yes. I didn't know I was going to be a pollster. I uh, The first couple of years after college, I worked on campaigns and, you know, I guess I was pretty good at doing research and writing memos and And Doug Schoen and Mark Penn in the early days of Penn and Schoen um, were kind enough to ask me if I wanted to be a pollster and that's how I got my start. So Penn's
0: definitely a legend and has, you know, advised Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, but Lately, I'm trying to figure out where he's coming from. I mean, he's writing that the Mueller investigation needs to stop and Democrats need to stop talking about things like transgender rights. Do you have any insight as to what his motivations are lately?
1: I don't. I would argue, though, that, you know, his his perspective is coming, I think, from his position as being kind of a, a key strategist during the Clinton administration and less about – Americans' views towards what's happening in the country today. And I don't really know all the different players back in the 90s in terms of who was involved in what. Mm -hmm. But the idea with President Clinton and Lewinsky, I'm reminded that, you know, he talked about not having sexual relations with that woman, but also going back to the work on behalf of the people of America. And at that time, the investigation had been going on much longer than the current investigation. That's what the American people were interested in. And And I feel like, Mark is making a similar case today, again, not based on public opinion data, but really kind of based on his experience in the White House. But based on what worked 20 years ago? Perhaps. Under very different circumstances. Right. And the last one, you know— do
0: what you want with this question, but there you are. I know you're the director of polling at the uh, Harvard Institute of Politics, and Corey Lewandowski made the news yesterday. And one of the things that people are criticizing for is that the Harvard Institute of Politics ever allowed him to be a fellow. Do you regret your institution's decision?
1: Yes, and and you know that was certainly controversial when we had him in the fall semester. I think as a visiting fellow, clearly that decision is well above my pay grade here. Yeah. But what I will say generally is we engage in civil conversations with folks who are engaged in politics in this country in states and in, in, in cities and in, uh, in other places around the world. And, and that's what we had with Corey. He was here for a couple of days I believe, on campus, I think I attended a breakfast or lunch with him, and and he honestly, you know, took questions from our students and other members of our community. As I recall, that was obviously several months ago. I don't think anyone would defend, you know, the remarks regarding um, the immigrant kids in Texas and specifically I think the comment with, uh, was it like a 10-year-old with Down syndrome? So incredibly, incredibly troubling. But again, I think kind of the mission of the IOP is to bring – young people closer to politics and government. We may not agree with everyone who comes in, but uh, we hope to learn something from their perspective uh, with the ability to ask questions and choose to agree or disagree um, at the end of the day. While
0: it was there, do you think that the students gleaned any insight from what he offered?
1: I think so. You know, and again, insight in terms of how he ran that campaign. Mm -hmm. It might be Insight that you can use to respond in the future, you know, to similar campaigns. There are a variety of different ways to learn from that experience. But I I do think he was relatively forthright in terms of the answers to the questions that students and other members of the community asked. Now, uh, whether or not that's the way in which our students or others choose to run campaigns in the future, that's up to them. But at least they could benefit from that conversation. Well, thank you so
0: much. John Della Volpe is the CEO of Social Sphere, which is a polling organization, and he is the director of polling for the Harvard Institute of Politics. Thank you again. Thank you, Mike. Now the spiel politics. Politics is weird, isn't it? Constitutional democracies. They're wacky. The president, our president, he campaigns on his very good idea of banning Muslims. He is fairly unambiguous about this idea.
1: Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on.
0: And then, upon getting elected, guess what he does? He institutes the very ban he talked about all those times. That part, actually, that's not weird. That is a bad idea, but it's not weird. It's a nationalist candidate getting elected and instituting his policies. Not nice, but not weird. But that policy cannot become law because we have checks and balances. Now, checks and balances aren't weird. They're a good idea. Really good democracies have their versions of checks and balances. The courts, countries throughout the world, check the executive. But it's how they check the executive here in the United States that's a little weird. So Trump issues the ban at first, like right away, and the courts say, nope, no good. So Trump rewrites the ban, and the courts say, nope, still not good. So then he rewrites the ban, and the courts say, okay, maybe we'll see. We'll let it go through. And then eventually they say, yes, the executive does in fact have the power to impose this ban, even though the president at first told us that he was motivated By malice, both ugly and ignorant, but more important to the courts, illegal. Trump very much helped them come to this conclusion. Here he was at one of those failed executive order signing ceremonies. So this was one that was overturned. He couldn't stick to the script. And this is the protection of the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States. We all know what that means. Cut to few months later, lawyer Neil Cattell picked up on that very statement and he made sure to mention it in oral arguments before the Ninth Circuit. When he issued the first executive order, he read the title of the executive order, looked up at the camera and said, we all know what that means. That's at S.E.R. 140. But eventually, Donald Trump got his ban before the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court, of course, is supposed to be a check on his authority. Now, let's examine both parts of that check and authority. Donald Trump's authority stems from the fact that he was elected, that most Americans. Well, actually not. That more Americans than for any other candidate voted for, no, that's not true either. That 46.1% of Americans voted for him. And because 46.1% of Americans voted for him, we have to take very seriously the wants, needs, and desires of these 46.1% of Americans, and he's president. Why'd they vote for him? They voted for him precisely because he promised them vicious, religiously motivated Muslim bans that wouldn't pass constitutional muster. And then he is ultimately allowed to enact those bans because the court does not check his power to do so. And when we say, the court doesn't check his power. Or when we say something like the court upholds the travel ban, we're saying five out of the nine justices say it's allowable. By the way, four out of nine justices works out to 44.4% of the court. So then if you win 46% of the vote by promising to violate the constitution, and then you do violate the constitution, our country is definitely going to get together and say, why would we listen to 44.4% of the court? That's not nearly sufficient to percentage to actually listen to. And when we say the Supreme Court decided or the judges on the court decided, we're really saying, this is not news, one more judge said so than didn't say so. In this case, they won by one. One more judge said so, therefore the court said so. And that one is there on the court because Donald Trump won the election by promising to do unconstitutional things. And not just this one, but all of his constitutionally violative proposals pressuring businesses to fire employees, and everyday emoluments clause violations. And just a couple days ago, the idea that due process should be suspended for immigrants. I'm not giving you any new facts with this. You all know this. You know what a 5-4 decision means. We know that the fifth vote was Gorsuch, who was put there by Trump. We know that Trump's populism made him popular enough to win. And we know that many portions of the populism are unconstitutional. But I was just thinking about it in this framework, that Mr. Unconstitutional comes along, becomes popular enough for a short while to change the structure of those who would defend the Constitution. And it works. And he gets to rewrite the law in a way that, I don't know, at least those four justices saw as unconstitutional. And in the end, the balance that's supposed to be represented by the court, it it is so out of balance. It is so out of balance when you compare it to the power of Trump, king of Twitter, who can excite passions, who could dominate the ether, who could gin up conflict and coverage at will. And what is the check to this? Well, let me quote NPR's political director, Dominic Montanero in a tweet. He says, read Sotomayor's comments as she thundered her dissent on the travel ban opinion from the bench this morning. Yes, read a transcript of a thing a robed individual read out loud based on the thing that she wrote a few weeks ago. That will do it. That's what's going to protect democracy. That transcript. Elections have consequences, I know that. And the executive does have wide latitude to enact immigration policy. And also, I am not sure that this ban will have a huge real-world impact. But today was a stark and notable reminder of the asymmetry between a president like Trump and the traditional institutions meant to save us all from him. And that's it for today's show. Oyez oh Oyez, oh Pierre Biename and Danielle Schrader produced the gist. They read their opinions from the bench, only it was a bench waiting for the M14 bus and it was drowned out by all that honking. And their opinions were just the rankings of the best Doctor Who's over the years, so it really wasn't all that impactful. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He frequently issues a scathing dissent from the bench, followed by a series of slick burns from a tire swing. The gist. I remember some of uh, history's most famous descents. It was Donner Party versus Donner Descent, which was uh, can we just eat all of Steve before moving on to Connie and Schultz versus Hindenburg Corporation. I say we go with helium. And as always, thanks to our Slate Plus listeners who help support the show. If you are not yet a member, you're dead to me and I hate you. Okay, I'll give you one more chance to get back in my good graces. Go to slate.com/gistplus. It is just $35 for your first year, and you will get ad free versions of this and other slate podcasts, and you'll become a person in my eyes again. Mumperu, do Dooperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs> just seeing Steve on the tire swing. <laughs> oh, no, you didn't.